find something of value. The higher education community in South Africa is highly unintellectualized. How central the humanity is. Welcome back to the Academic Citizen. I'm Mahita Ikani. And I'm Nosipam Gomezulu. After many years of hiatus, we decided to make our podcast again. Our goal is to provide a space for higher education community in South Africa and beyond, and to explore and discuss what we do and why it matters. Yes, exactly. We want students, researchers, scientists, teachers, and administrators to find something of value in this podcast. So we'll be focusing on creating interdisciplinary themed conversations in every episode. And I'm really excited about our first episode, which is themed around comebacks. Which is apt, considering that we are busy staging one as we speak. (laughs) Yeah, back when we last made this podcast, we published 54 episodes, which you can still find on SoundCloud. Yeah, I mean, that's really something to be proud of. 54 episodes is quite a lot. And they were all, you know, quality episodes. They all had really wonderful guests and covered really significant topics. And there's definitely some lessons that we can take from that work that we did back in the day. And there's also people to remember. Definitely. As we think about comebacks, we also think about those who are not coming back with us on this new season, like our former producer, Simbarashe Honde, who was our producer for the second season, who we tragically lost in 2021. It really was such a loss for radio, for podcasting, for us personally, and really just for the academy in general. Simba was busy with a PhD in journalism at WITS at the time of his passing. And I know that all of his colleagues and friends were really devastated to lose him. And so were we. We were both really, really sad to hear the news of his passing. So we just wanted to dedicate this first episode and the season really to him, to his memory, Wherever he is, we remember him. We remember his spirit, his enthusiasm for radio and really all the excellent work that he did together with us and, of course, in all of his other projects. As we mourn Simba's loss, we hold close to our hearts the many people across the world in mourning, grieving the loss of family, friends, colleagues and students. We just want to take a moment as we reflect on comebacks to hold space for all these losses. So, yeah, let's maybe just integrate a few moments of silence to honor the memory of Simbarashe Honde and of course all of the others that we have lost in the past couple of years. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. It's such a privilege to be able to return to this project. And as we look forward to a new season, we also want to look back on some of our earlier episodes. You can find our archive on SoundCloud. And one of the most memorable conversations I want to look back on is one of the first conversations I had um, on the academic season with the dynamic professor Brenda Mshambe in episode 32. This was the first episode I did in 2017, reflecting on the intellectualization of African languages. Prof. Mshambi and I reflected on major factors responsible for the status and restricted roles for African languages in South African higher education institutions. 
In that episode, we had such fun discussing key themes of decolonization of higher education, African languages beyond oriture, young people's linguistic creativity, and the impact of an evolving linguistic practice on and offline in higher education. So if you'd like to listen back on this episode, you can find it on episode 32. Such a big fan of Professor Mklambi's work. If you bring in... Uh, developments around the studies of nationalism currently and how they are blasting open all the paradigms of thinking around nationalism and the kinds of knowledge production system to sort of emanate from those older paradigms, then you would be at a point where you can begin to say language varieties that are urban-based are part and parcel mm. of our linguistic terrain. Mm. They capture the moment, and we did not actually go to them as prescriptive to say, this is how you should be speaking, this is not how you should be speaking, mm. do you understand? You, you, you should actually begin to describe why the language is evolving in the language it is right now. This conversation with Prof. Mzambi reminds me also of my chat in episode 54 with Oscar Massignana on the politics of academic publishing. As we reflect on continued practices of decolonizing academic institutions and language, this episode offered some insights on the changing landscape of academic publishing. You know, there's no simple formula for getting published. Expectations vary between and within subject areas, but there's some challenges that we will con- that will confront all academic writers, regardless of discipline. So in this conversation, uh, Oscar offers some insights on how to engage with reviewers' feedback and rejection. He talks about predatory journals and how to spot them, and if there is a correct way to promote one's work and get more citations. I think self-promotion is very difficult for academics because I think part of being an academic is this self-effacing, you know, the work speaks for itself mm. vibe. And now we're in a completely different era like of scholarship where tweeting has become so important. Mm. And there has been studied or showed a link how highly tweeted articles also then have a higher chance of citation, right? Mm. So it does translate, right? So, and not citation outside of the academic space, but within the academic space. So it does translate in a lot of ways. So tweet about your article, tweet, Facebook it, promote your work. That sounds like it was a really wonderful episode to look back on. I also had the privilege of speaking to so many wonderful scholars back when I was hosting this podcast. And as we were preparing for this new season, I was struck by how things often seem to move in cycles. At the time that we were preparing this particular podcast, UCT students went on strike again and succeeded, I think, in quite quickly shutting down UCT campus in protest of student debt. And of course, this reminded me of a very iconic and important moment of Fees Must Fall. And the conversation that I had with then student protester, Moshibude Motimele, who is now Dr. Motimele, a lecturer at the University of the Free State. It was a wonderful conversation. And it really, I think, presented the student perspective and the student politics in a very uh, sophisticated and detailed light. And here's one worthwhile soundbite that Moshibude Motimele shared about Fismas Paul back in 2016. I think it, it all depends on like a larger framework that you use, right? So 
for those people who invested in maintaining a commodified education within a neoliberal system, a university can't exist without students paying for it, right? You're a consumer, you're here to get a good. That good is education, you must pay for it and you'll get benefits out of it. But if we start to imagine a university in a different framework, right, which is the discussions we're having, if we see the university as a public good, right, a public good that everyone has the right to access, we don't then ask the question about whether or not your ability to have access to water should depend on your pocket because of the way in which we associate water as a necessity and something that people shouldn't be excluded from on the basis of money. And so as students, that's what we're saying, that, well, let's see the university as a public good. And if just that macro framework changes, a lot of things will change internally. One, the focus on research output won't be the priority that it is. There'll be a greater focus on teaching because students then become the public good that you're trying to nurture and give back out. Also, the type of research that we do. It's great to get Nobel Prizes and all these international ratings, but how is this research socially responsive? How does it respond to the social context that we're in here in Bramfontein, here in Johannesburg, here in South Africa? And so if we shift the mindset of what is the place that we want the university to play in society, then all those other questions won't be the first priority, right? The first question is not, can it be done? It's how do we do it? And relatedly, also at the same time that we were prepping this show, I kept getting auto-replies on emails to colleagues in the United Kingdom to tell me that they were on strike. So UK academic staff have also been on strike again. Back in 2016, I interviewed Professor Natalie Fenton from Goldsmiths University about why academic staff were striking back then. And at the moment, there are a range of, of new issues, but also related to the concerns and the grievances from 2016. And here's a particularly memorable explanation that Professor Fenton gave all those years back, which still sounds and feels very apt to the current circumstances. Universities and education is not like selling washing powder or bread. It's a very, you know, education is not a commodity that can be bought and sold in that way. It has to be dealt with in a very particular manner and kind of outside of any market structures. So applying market principles to something which is actually, you know, doesn't fit that rubric at all has led us into this really difficult position. So as we reflect in this episode on comebacks, it might be worth remembering that until we manage to undo the injustices of history to create new futures, it's likely that the same old problems will keep repeating themselves. So, yeah, we've been looking back into the past of our own podcast, which sets the scene in a way for thinking about other kinds of comebacks. And perhaps the most uh, significant comeback that many of us are experiencing in this beginning of the new academic year is a coming back to campus. So I wanted to talk to some colleagues about what their campus comebacks have looked and felt like. I'm Associate Professor Tanya Bosch, based at the Centre for Film and Media Studies at UCT, the University of Cape Town. Any comeback needs a departure in the first place. Professor Bosch was away from campus not only due to the lockdowns and the pandemic, like all of us, but also because she went on sabbatical. I kind of feel like we need to coin a new phrase for this 
noisy. What do we call it? A pandemical? Oh, pandemonium. <laughs> pandemonium in the pandemical. So mm. Prof Bosch came back from pandemical and she describes her return like this. Going out in public for the first time was kind of weird. Um, so figuring out what to wear when I went back to the office for the first time was a little bit strange. Then once I was in the office, there were a, a few interesting things that happened. Firstly, the spiders, like, oh my goodness, where did the spiders come from during lockdown? They obviously took over my office. I am not a fan of bugs. I am definitely not a fan of spiders. Also, anyone that knows about UCT campus will know that the birds occupy a particular hierarchy on our campus. So like sometimes when you're teaching, if the windows are open, birds will fly in and disrupt your classroom. So it really felt like the birds took over our building while we were away on COVID lockdown. You know, it made me think of that hashtag nature is healing, except not really because the birds were in this urban setting, living in the hallways in our building. I think for me, one of the things that happened when I returned to campus was a little bit sad for me because I was tidying my office and I found this bag of cookies that had expired in I think like 2019 and the cookies were a throwback to a time when I used to host what I called coffee hours for my postgrad students so coffee plus office and I'd invite them to the free coffee from our fancy coffee machine in the staff room and I'd always bring a packet of biscuits or muffins or something to serve with with the free coffee and we just chat about about their research or chat about life and the universe and everything. You know, I saw these expired cookies and they were really good ones to Woolies cookies. So it was a pity that um, they had to go wasted. So for Professor Bosch coming back to campus was understandably a bit strange, but it also felt good. It was really nice coming back into my office. You know, it felt like I was a visitor in someone else's office. It's like, oh, wow, this is a really nice pen. Oh, this is my pen. I left it here two years ago. Like, oh, that's a really cool notebook. Um, I'd forgotten I owned that notebook. So it was really nice coming back into the office. It felt like coming back home. I actually took a selfie. So I felt a bit ridiculous doing that, but I did. I took a selfie of myself in my office and I put it on my Instagram story. And then I laughed at myself for doing such a ridiculous thing. I really resonated with how how Professor Bosch spoke of the office as a kind of second home. And I'm sure many colleagues actually experienced their, their offices, their workplaces as second homes. And having been away from them for so long in this kind of enforced absence meant that going back to campus can often be quite an emotional experience, lots of different layers of feeling and observation that might be in some ways quite alienating, in some ways quite familiar. And I was also really curious to explore, you know, what this comeback to campus meant and felt like for, for those of us who spend a significant part of our academic citizenship teaching. The comeback is literally an opportunity for us to do a little bit better than what we did before. That was Dr. Serene Rathilal. Hi, I'm Dr. Serene Rathilal, and I'm a lecturer at the UJ Department of Mathematics and Applied Mathematics. And I'm Dr. Andrew Craig, also a lecturer in the Department of Maths and Applied Maths at UJ. I spoke to these really passionate, committed mathematics lecturers from the University of Johannesburg about their return to the classroom. And I managed to speak to them in the same week that was their very first week on campus. So they had almost kind of literally just walked out of the lecture halls and into the recording with me. 
And it was really enlightening and actually quite emotional to hear from them what that experience was like. And they both had some quite poignant things to say about how difficult it actually was to teach such an extremely challenging subject online through this kind of enforced emergency remote learning that many of us have struggled with in the past couple of years. You never got to sit and watch a student working something out, which is kind of key in maths because as they're going at each step, they're making these kind of micro decisions that are based on their understanding of the work. And when you can stand in a, in a tut and actually encourage them as they go, you can also just make these tiny corrections along the way that can steer them towards the right answer. But also when they do something wrong, you can say, why did you do that? And then you get some feedback as to what the kind of misunderstanding is. So the interaction was absent. It's the disconnect. It's this one-way type of communication that you're having with the student. Even when you have the email communication and you provide them with the insights to complete the problem, sometimes you don't get the response back or the response is not received that allows you to see if they're truly understood. So as a result of all of these difficulties of teaching online, being back in the classroom felt really good to both doctors, Craig and Rathilal. And they explained to me how the synchronicity of face-to-face teaching and literally just seeing their students again in the hallways, in the classrooms, is so central, actually, to the academic project of teaching maths. And they, they felt this joy in being able to see and engage and converse with their students in person again. And it was palpable throughout our discussion. So going forward, I'm looking at ways to actually utilize the skills that we've acquired from having to do these online things for the past two years to implement them in these physical situations. And I'd like to share that I actually did try to do something new yesterday and it was an absolute success. So I hadn't had an opportunity to chat to Andrew about it yet, but I actually implemented a Mentimeter quiz in class. And they were absolutely excited to do something like this in the last 10 minutes of the lesson to actually see whether they got a question right or not. You could hear the excitement in their voice and they all scream out, yes, I got it right. (laughs) And I think what's also good about it is that they like the fact that it's a bit anonymous. It doesn't carry any marks and they're just doing it for fun. In a classroom, you can see who's being quiet and it's the quiet ones who you actually need to talk to. You know, the ones who are confident enough to put a question in the Blackboard chat, you don't kind of need to worry about them. They're engaged, but it's being able to spot the quiet ones and actually go to them. I have had full attendance at all of my classes. I love what I do. And just to see the turnout in there is just something that it excites me and inspires me to just do a little bit better every single day. Okay, so along with all of these wonderful, exciting, joyful things that they both spoke about, they also each kind of communicated that there was this extra pressure that they felt in coming back to campus. And that was related to the additional work that they felt responsible to do to kind of hold the emotional space for students. And I think this speaks to a real a sensitivity on both of their parts in recognizing, you know, being a student in South Africa is hard enough for many students. But on top of that, the trauma and the difficulties of two years of pandemic life certainly had an impact on the comeback, on what it felt like to be in a classroom with these young people who are trying to learn. 
I guess part of it is also just trying to be even more personable than one would have been in the sort of pre-COVID era, just because that's been that's been totally absent. I think both of us are, you know, fairly approachable people, but now you suddenly think, okay, this is the bit we've been missing. Let's capitalize on the fact that it's back and really emphasize it. Yeah, just trying to be even more friendly and and kind of relaxed and trying to keep things informal and relatable for the students because I think they everyone's kind of sitting around in masks and so you have to like smile with their eyes as much as possible to get the message across that actually you're having a good time and sort of try and exhibit physical energy to show that you're you're a bit excited about what's happening as well. We try to do a little bit more than what we did before. I mean, because now there's a mask that's on that's still preventing them from seeing my expression and likewise me from seeing theirs. So what I tend to do is I try to use my voice a little bit more actively. The difficulties that everyone experienced under the under the hard lockdown and in the most severe waves of COVID is that, as you say, we're not, we're not trained to provide support. And at any point, you always felt that whatever support you were providing over email or something was just completely inadequate. You know, if a student contacted you and said, oh, I can't do this assignment, you know, these these people in my family are sick, etc. What you could offer over email was really, I don't think, much, much solace. And I've always found that, you know, even in the absence of COVID, students experience difficulties, family tragedies, just difficulties in their personal circumstances around finance or anything. And being able to just talk to them in your office for five or 10 minutes, I think it provides a certain amount of reassurance. And so it's nice to have that kind of tool back that for a struggling student, academic or otherwise, whatever their struggles are, to be able to have the option of a just a little in-person chat. So speaking to these two maths lecturers, Dr. Andrew Craig and Dr. Serena Rathalal, it really just reminded me of how central humanity is to the academic project. And this is true perhaps even more so in pure science disciplines like mathematics. It reminded me that students aren't just brains, they also have hearts. They're complete, complex people, and they bring multiple intellectual, psychological, socioeconomic, and emotional aspects along into their learning experiences. Scientists and educators do so much more than simply act as a conveyor belt for knowledge and kind of produce degrees in these factory-like universities. We, We deal with the full complexity of the people that we're trying to communicate with and educate. And really, the conversation with these two maths lecturers reminded me of how central this humanity is to the entire academic project. Being back in a department where the corridors are filled with people who love mathematics in the same way that you do too, it really motivated me to get more done. It's just nice to see students sitting under trees on the lawn. In my first conversation this season, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Carlos in Paris. I think it's apt that this conversation about comebacks takes place across time and space. I seated in Ann Arbor, Michigan, many miles away from home, and Carla connecting with me seven hours in the future from Cape Town, South Africa. In this conversation, Carla draws on her extensive work on the history of illness and wellness, and to think 
with the past as we imagine what it means to come back. I'm Dr. Carla Sampiris. I'm a senior lecturer in medical and health humanities, currently based in the primary healthcare directorate in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Cape Town. So my first question for our comebacks episode, I wanted to know, Carla, are you back on campus and what has that been like and what is coming back mean to you? Okay, so that in this particular week is a question that I am slightly hesitant to ask. So we were technically back on campus last week, and well, the week before last actually for health sciences, and then there have been protests this week. So we have been given directives to not come onto campus and to go back online. So it feels more like coming and going rather than coming back. It feels like, you know, an oscillation between a thing that was and a thing that will be and hopefully a thing that will come once again. Comebacks necessarily imply movement and are not unidirectional. Carla shares with me the demanding experience of coming back to teaching face-to-face during a pandemic and the connotations of comebacks in this context. Talking about comebacks, I'm not quite sure I ever came back from that. The thing of how does one teach in a way that recognises the very harsh realities of a social injustice in the middle of a pandemic from which you know people are not coming back, either some of them are not coming back because they've died, some are not coming back because lives and livelihoods have been completely disrupted. And, you know, that applied to to staff members and to students and to families and friends and extended communities. The one thing for me is that, you know, a comeback often has, you know, several connotations, one of which is something terrible has happened and now you're able to come back to something new. And the other one is that, you know, there's been something that people have done deliberately that have been shameful or have, you know, have, have forced them out the limelight and now they're making a big return or something external has forced people out of their particular zone and now they have to make a big return and and usually with bells and whistles and trumpets and all sorts of exciting things to to herald the comeback. And, you know, the things that were different are are some of the things I described, the actual physical context, the being in the room and the realisation of how ill-equipped our current idea of lecture venues are in terms of connecting us to the outside world and to things like daylight and air and most of the new lecture theatres, and I've commented on this before because it's, it's something that, that's always struck me. You go into all the parts of universities and, you know, it's tiered lecture theatres with wooden seating and there's usually double sash windows or something that have been adjusted to the technology age of teaching. So, you know, then there'll be a shine, there'll be the big PowerPoint screen and we all hail PowerPoint and Microsoft and there's that kind of moment of, you know, it always feels like it's a kind of religious engagement with the power of Microsoft. And then you walk into newer lecture venues kind of constructed at the point of this idea of the freedoms that technology would give. And you realize that, you know, those freedoms come at a particular cost. I mean, they're they're obviously deeply bound to electricity, which is not great when you have a load shedding, but they're also part of a kind of aesthetic that in many ways shuts out the external. So they usually aren't windows because windows are Mm -hmm. for screens or, you know, to save costs, buildings are built in a certain way. So you have a context where a point where the very basic ideas of the air we share in lecture theatres takes on a totally different meaning in the middle of a pandemic that's that's linked to air and breath and breathing. So it was remarkable to come back. I loved it. I had forgotten how much I enjoyed being able to see people's faces and, and have conversations in different ways. But I couldn't help but be struck as well that you couldn't come back to the same thing in the same mm-hmm. way you 
step in the same river twice. You cannot step into a lecture theatre in the context now and it be exactly the same because too much has changed. Just to piggyback off that, I would like you to maybe speak to the idea of like resonances and echoes of the past. I was thinking about like the COVID-19 mandates. So our masks, our lockdowns, our contact tracing, it evokes many historical parallels to restrictions of movement, surveillance, militarization, especially for South Africans, but I think for many people across the world that we might have seen something like this before. And I wanted to know, as a historian, what do you make of these comebacks or these echoes of the past, which feel eerily similar to historical responses to threats, real and perceived? And what do you think this does to how we respond to the real health crisis of COVID-19? Sammy, I think the real health crisis has, was and always will be social inequalities and Mm. the system that radically perpetuates them and is in fact accelerating the perpetuation of disparities between the most wealthy and the most poor. So that that's one thing. I mean, that all other health kind of crises, whether they're pandemic scale or smaller scale countrywide health conditions, are intimately tied to that and almost impossible to extricate from that. So health crises and the ways in which a sociopolitical organising identity markers, whether that be around race, class, gender, sexual orientation, ability, or any of the other kind of multitude of constructions of of people's being, faith, belief systems, cosmologies, have an impact on how a health crisis is experienced, perceived, or responded to. So you see similarities in kind of shorter memory. And a lot of the comparisons that came out during the lockdown and stuff spoke to a kind of one generation or so, a very short reference point back to ideas of restriction of movement. And, you know, in some ways, the ideas of, of having to have legal documents that facilitate movement in the forms of vaccine passports. But there are, you know, longer and further parallels that we can take. So we can think about the 1918 epidemic, which is often referred to as the Spanish epidemic, And just to be clear, epidemics clearly do not run around with passports and national identity. They don't run around declaring their particular moment of being bound by a certain geographical moment. Okay, So the Spanish flu called the Spanish flu because Spain was one of the first countries to report on it openly, whereas other countries where it was already seen did not speak so openly. And so there's interesting parallels already there in terms of who declares, who informs, and what the implications are for that, for a country that does it, as we saw with the with the moment of the Omicron. Yeah. Okay. But you do see in, you know, in the influenza epidemic, you, you see a number of, of parallels in the sense that there were efforts to try and get people to not move, you know, if they could help not to. But the problems of being at the end of a major global war that saw hundreds and thousands of troops and soldiers and you know, kind of the, the ancillary staff that go into the war machine being moved across and and through countries and between borders and over borders. And so, you know, Howard Phillips has done extensive work on this. And you see, you know, if you look at the South African trajectory, you watch how the influenza epidemic follows the railway lines because mm. people, you know, ports and then they, they're taking trains to go home. And mm. as travel, there is infection spread and there is this, conflict of both the joyful reunions of coming home after a war or after, you know, tough work contracts or the personal context of people moving to get home. And in that 
coming home, bringing with a pathogen that essentially brings death and destruction with it. So mm. the tensions between the economic demands of the movement of people for the economy, in big inverted commas, and the realities of needing to restrict movement for the greater public good, Mm. in terms of wellness and well-being, because that does beg a question about, well, if there's no money and people starve, is that a greater good? But in a world where we took money not as the priority, but the wellness of citizens as the priority, or the wellness of residents or occupants, you see those tensions played out in a similar kind of way. But you can go even further back than that. So there were a series of smallpox outbreaks in what was then the Cape Colony in the 1700s, so there were three or four of them. One was an almost epidemic. And often those were brought about by ships coming into the harbour, usually with infected laundry or sheets or clothing. And smallpox, of course, is quite remarkable that it can live happily on a you know a bit of a cloth for six months, if not more. And then having done nothing because everybody who's you know still alive has survived it, when it's then introduced to a new group of people, can infect people. And what we saw in the Cape Colonies in the 1770s particularly was kind of things that we have seen echoed in the current pandemic, but also the early years of the AIDS epidemic. So you see blame of particular groups of people that often have a xenophobic or racist overtone. You see efforts to to restrict movement because there, there is a need to do that on one hand, but often in a way that facilitates distrust or a kind of resistance from people because the context in which those decisions are being made made are not ones in which people feel equally empowered or engaged. And in some cases, you know, especially people, some people just don't exist as citizens. They're not seen as actual people. So you have these very interesting echoes that come through that, but you also have echoes of people organizing and resisting and helping each other. So... Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at Makanda during the 1918 epidemic, you know, certain groups of people organized to try and assist more broadly. But of course, there were always caveats. There was not suddenly a massive abolition of all sort of racism and sexism, but there were efforts to coordinate relief or support. Howard Phillips has written about this again in, in his book, Looking Particularly at Cape Town, and he talks about community leaders and and religious leaders coming together and concocting these big barrels of, you know, just like everything people thought might help. So like a little bit of a a painkiller, a little bit of a, because nobody knew what to do with the infringement. And these barrels being rolled up and down all over the, you know, what was then obviously the much smaller city of Cape Town, often by children because they were, you know, the last ones left standing, as it were. And, you know, adults or community members dishing out cups of liquids for people to drink in the hope that it might do something. So there are also echoes in the same way as you see with HIV and AIDS pandemic of people when the state or when other people don't get organized around the thing, people saying, okay, well, we will pull together as much as we can. What's been different, I think, in the COVID pandemic is that there has been more direction from the state in many ways for, for all the kind of arguments that that's brought forward and all the all the tension that that's created. And we've seen, you know, with the development of the community action networks, we saw this moment of people organizing outside of a kind of government approved context, a vaccine passport that potentially protects the people you don't know, you know, people with the comorbidities that are walking past you or sitting next to you in public transport or, you know, walking past you on the street. 
is a fundamentally different thing from a kind of racist past system mm. that restricts mm. you not for the good of anybody else except for a few elite. Mm. So, so the the equivalency would be, you know, if we, if we were to do a direct comparison, it would more be like if you're one of the one percent and you have a, you don't have to have a passport one way or the other, you can do whatever you like, and the mm. rest nine percent of the population has to prove that they're worthy to work or to move or to go anywhere, and that's kind of not what's happening with the quest for the vaccines. And it's been interesting for me how there is a the kind of arguments that are coming through and sometimes I think very crass and inappropriate calling on apartheid legislation. So, you know, like you beach protests and people going, this is as bad as the apartheid. Well, no, actually, no, it's not. You know, you have a right to protest here. You know, you live in a democratic constitutional democracy. This is not the same. The basic starting point of the comparison is not the same. The legacies and residues, absolutely, the inequalities and, you know, racism that was never dealt with and classism that was never dealt with and all the other isms that haven't been dealt with, absolutely, those are there. But to make a suggestion that in 2022, in a context where we are using a human rights-based articulation to defend both the rights of the individual and the broader rights of society is not the same thing. But I've also been surprised at like how language that is often seen as too extreme or, you know, belongs to the fringe ultra-left. So I don't know, things like my body, my choice, things like, you know, people's bodily autonomy being foregrounded when we're discussing issues of sexual and gender-based violence and it being appropriated in contexts that are very anti those beliefs. And I just found that really interesting and bizarre to observe that we're seeing the mobilization of language that otherwise is kind of vilified and seen as like too radical. But in the instance of kind of like mask mandates or vaccination mandates or even vaccination cards as, you know, suddenly making it appropriate to invoke that kind of language. The thing that we're also seeing in the media landscape is that there's less space for dialogue and also less space for changing one's mind. Mm. The creation of binary positions does a number of things. It, it makes people intractable, so they, they kind of get stuck in their position because it, this is the position I'm taking, and, and, and now if I turn back, there's, you know, 4,000 tweets of me holding a different position and then and then what happens and you know it's difficult enough when you've upset somebody that you know like a loved one to go and say look I'm really sorry I didn't quite get that right up of it you know I didn't quite do what I should have I, I really messed up I'm really sorry so you know that can be difficult enough in a one-to-one context with people that you you want to be spend time with or you've chosen to spend time with now you magnify that to a context where it's in some ways a kind of verbal free-for-all and people can mm-hmm. say things and bully and do whatever they want to because it's social media and it's in some ways it's, it's totally unregulated in many ways. We very easily get used to a thing we think is normal when we have nothing else against which to compare it. Mm. So we, pre-COVID, had got ourselves into a kind of rat-run context of work and consumption that, you know, people have been talking about. You had the anti-globalization movement, you know, you had the Luddite revolutions way back in, in the UK at the start of, you know, mechanization. There have been these kind of quiet discussions about 
what is the normal that we have? And, you know, there, there were these interesting moments of hope. You know, Aaron Doughty Roy wrote very eloquently about this during the pandemic of, mm. you know, if you open the door for a new world, it might just come. And so I think we need to be, we need to be conscious about what the normal is, because what we had, excessive hours, increasing exploitation for the contracting of labor, increasing pressure on the environment, acceleration of systems collapse, that's kind of an abnormal normal. It's deeply abnormal. It's like toxic relationship abnormal. Mm. So, you know, what are the things that, that we want in the comeback? What What is the new normal? And, you know, like I'm like normal, normative, it can be a bit boring and dull. I mean, I'm not always such a fan of that. You know, I get kind of like, you know, really normal can be deeply boring. But what are, when we make this comeback in terms of our connections again, our communities, our professions, our engagement with people around us, what is it that we want individually, but also collectively? Mm. So I think about this in like in my most optimistic daydream moments. I want what started as, you know, relational spaces between different communities to continue. I want them to grow. I want to have a discussion where we we make all our decisions for future generations and for the people around us. So we recognize what is important to us. I mean, I'm not suggesting we all go slaughter ourselves and sacrifice ourselves on, you know, the great table of martyrdom or anything like that. I'm talking about what is it that we would like to see in place so that when the next epidemic comes, and there will be a next epidemic, make no mistake, we would have in place instead of what mm-hmm. we have now. Because that's the kind of abnormal. I want that abnormal. The normal we had, I, I've never been convinced by. Mm-hmm. So abnormal is what I want. Mm-hmm. I want to know what is what do we come back to in the new abnormal? And for me, in terms of things like teaching, I want to be able to see students' faces so that I can get a sense of what is upsetting or engaging people. I don't want to have to worry when we send out, you know, recorded lectures that I have students standing on, you know, the top of a roof trying to get signal between, you know, 12 and 6 because that's when the free data is available because that's disgusting. Mm. Not for that person, but for us who have allowed it to happen. Mm. I want a place where we can talk not just about content of subjects, but about these bigger questions. Mm. I mean to be a healthcare professional who may not be comfortable with having a vaccine. How do you position that for yourself? How do you make the judgment? Is there a point at which, you know, you say, okay, evidence must outweigh belief and what does that mean if you have to do that you know some of us have done that in other things you know if if we've come from you know particular faith traditions the who we loved or how we are in the world may very well have been seen as other than or not acceptable and so you know what do we do that so these are not new conversations I mean we've had these conversations in different fora at different points but are we capable as a species of having them again now Mm. Can we look back at the normal and say, you know, these are the things I liked about that. And I recognize what I liked about being a lecture theater is being able to connect with other people. Mm. And I think, you know, we need to think of comebacks as a way of coming back to what we imagine could be rather than coming back to what was there before. Mm. We need to come back to the unknown so we can make the new. 
That's what I want. That's the comeback I want. It's time to read the room. Read the room is our final short segment of the show where we share short reviews from us hosts, listeners, or any other people of interest who summarize something interesting that they're currently reading, watching, or listening. Seeing as it's our first podcast in a while, we'll go first. Right now, I'm reading Until Proven Safe, The History and Future of Quarantine by Jeff Manor and Nicola Twilley, published by Pan Macmillan in 2021. Seeing as this episode has been all about comebacks, this book very aptly explores the return of what the authors describe as a medieval technology, which has had a huge effect on life in the past couple of years. Of course, this is quarantine. Until Proven Safe is a very accessible book about a rather scary topic, one that is all too familiar given the current pandemic. Mano and Twilly take us into the history of quarantine and give a whole lot of well-researched and fascinating detail about the diseases that quarantine tried to protect people from, and all the architectural, technocratic, social, and biological expertise that played into quarantine rules and practices, both historically and contemporarily. It's a super interesting book and includes a lot of relevant information about the current COVID-19 pandemic and quarantines, as well as those linked to other diseases, the plague, cholera, Ebola, and more. The authors also explore where quarantine might go in the future. Here's a pithy quote. They say, As human settlement continues to encroach on previously undisturbed landscapes, and as climate change causes species ranges to shift, Experts agree that COVID-19 is just the first of many zoonotic outbreaks with the potential to shut down life as we know it. So quarantines have made a comeback and they may make more comebacks in the future. If anyone else has read this book or wants to discuss it, feel free to pop us feedback over email. And also, if you yourself would like to submit a short review of something that you're reading, watching or listening to, you're very welcome to record a two to three minute voice note including your name and affiliation, and email it to us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com. For my reading room, I would recommend Howard Phillips's In a Time of Plague, Memories of the Spanish Flu Epidemic of 1918 in South Africa. This book includes oral histories of people who were alive in 1970, in the mid-1970s when Howard did his PhD, and gave oral interviews. And it covers people from the length and breadth of South Africa and has some very interesting stories that are particularly relevant to those of us living through another pandemic. The Academic Citizen is produced and funded by the South African Research Chair in Science Communication hosted at Stellenbosch University. The aims of our podcast are to create a space for wide and deep discussion about key issues animating higher education in South Africa, Africa, the global South and beyond, create a space for interdisciplinary exchange for academic researchers and educators, help researchers, educators and scientists to tell their stories and listen to and learn from each other's insights and experiences, and create a space for science in all forms to be communicated in order to serve social justice broadly conceived. We welcome your feedback, opinions and suggestions for future guests and show themes. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or visit our website 
www.the-academic-citizen.org. The podcast was produced, researched, and scheduled by myself, Taryn Mackay. It was sound edited by Victoria de la Harp. We thank Professor Brenda Mshlabi, Oscar Masignana, Dr. Moshibude Motimele, Professor Natalie Fenton, Professor Tanya Bosch, Dr. Andrew Craig, Dr. Serene Rathalal, and Dr. Carla Sampras for contributing to this episode. Mm-hmm.